Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. This episode is actually a recording of an event I did many months ago with Brittany King, an up-and-coming freelance writer. We talk about Brittany's background leading her local BLM chapter, her experience studying with ta Coates, her evolving views on race and identity politics, how American race politics affects many people's views of the Israel-Palestine conflict, the causes of the 2020 summer riots, and many similar topics. So without further ado, Brittany King. So I'll start with my background. In 2016, after the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, I organized a protest in City Hall building um, in Columbus, Indiana. And Columbus, Indiana is a very conservative, predominantly white Republican town. Vice President Mike Pence is actually from my city. And so BLMC, it started off spontaneously. I wasn't setting out to start a Black Lives Matter. But after I was packing up from the protests and I looked at my friend, I was like, I'm actually kind of sick of protesting. And I'm sick of the fact that I can reuse these posters again and again. And I want to do like some fundamental changes in our community. So long story short, it took about a week for me to organize how I would effectively implement a BLM in Columbus, Indiana, because we weren't like Ferguson, we weren't like Baltimore, we weren't facing these issues that they were head on. But I wanted to have an organization where we could hold dialogue about racial issues going on nationally and locally. So my suspicions, and I guess like when I became a skeptic of BLM was at the tail end of my leadership with leading the chapter. Like Gloria said, I went to NYU for my master's in journalism and that was in 2018 in August. So when I left in August, I think about five or six months prior is when I started to get these suspicions that the overall BLM narrative or message was a little off. I felt like something deep down was going to backfire on BLM by certain narratives that was going around with like white guilt, white fragility and things of that nature. And um, it was actually these narratives that kind of sparked this confusion within me. Um, and it's something that I kind of dealt with internally, but I started to become confused and I don't wanna say worried, I'll just, I'll just start with this example. So I started to see that these phrases, white fragility, white guilt, and these notions of white silence is complicit, your silence is violence for white people. It was a bit of a contradiction because when we want them to come to protests or speak out to their families or their friends or, you know, 
be vocal on social media, we wanted them to be, you know, very loud about that. But when it came to holding actual dialogue with people in mixed company in intimate forums where like real discussion and real change could happen, it was almost as if we were saying, your silence, your being vocal here is violent. Like we want you to be silent here because we're like, don't sing yourself. Don't, don't cry. Don't show any emotions. Like don't exhaust the black people in the room. Don't overstep. Don't over talk. Like all of these rules were constricting the, the discussions. And even though with my chapter, I didn't implement this within our organization, but I definitely participated in this narrative online. Definitely we shared this narrative. I would even sometimes if someone asked me a couple of questions that I felt like I've answered before, I would be like, Google it and move on. And I would think that that was my agency. Like I felt like I, I had the right to do that. But I think right before I was about to leave NYU and I was stepping down and I was just think, thinking about this with myself, I was like, I don't think, I think we're off on this. And I think we're going to see a big backfiring. And I think it's happening right now, actually. So that's kind of like my journey. There's other examples, but I'll let you go on because I know that you had your own experiences with Black Lives Matter as well. Yes. Yeah, well, for my part, I remember in 2012 when Trayvon Martin was killed. That was the first moment in my life where I really, I guess the first moment after Obama was elected, but really the first moment where I felt like I was thinking about racism and its effect on its effect on the most important things in life in terms of your ability to stay alive. I had always taken for granted that racism existed in the form of occasional nuisances here and there. Um, but that was the first time that uh, I reckoned with the possibility that someone in the year 2012 at that time could get killed. Someone who was my age, I was the same age as Trayvon Martin. And it affected me. I remember I didn't follow the story closely, but I, you know, from what I did see and hear, I was fairly shaken to my core and very sympathetic to the rhetoric, the anti-racist activist rhetoric that came on the back of that tragedy. So for the next two years, I had a kind of default positive attitude towards Black Lives Matter. I felt at minimum they're on the right side of this issue in the broadest sense. Uh, fast forward to 2014, Eric Garner is killed in New York. Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson. And the riots in Ferguson begin. And at this point, I'm about 18 years old. I'm just getting out of high school, enrolling at Juilliard as a jazz major. And we're talking about the Michael Brown incident in class with a professor whose intellect I was not generally very impressed by. And uh, this professor took it for granted, took it as obvious that, that the, the policeman was in the wrong uh, for shooting. Not only that, that it was a, a racist tragedy. It was not just, it was a tragedy that could not possibly have happened had Michael Brown been white. And 
as I said, my lingering sympathy for Black Lives Matter made it so that that was my default opinion as well. And I couldn't imagine how anyone who wasn't racist could have had a different opinion. Then I remember talking to my roommate about it at the time, who was my best friend at the time as well. And he was a a white guy from Arizona uh, with a kind of, I guess, slightly more conservative politics than mine, but I wouldn't call him a conservative. He was likely a Democrat, but he was skeptical. And the fact that I knew him not to be racist because he was my best friend and he was skeptical, it suggested to me that there's a standpoint from which you can be skeptical that doesn't entail being a racist. And then I remember I became curious. I thought to myself, well, my professor who often says very shallow and uninformed things agrees with the default BLM position. Perhaps I should do a little bit more research and see what I actually think about this issue. And then I stayed up all night reading the testimony from both sides, from the cop, Darren Wilson, and from Michael Brown's uh, friend who he was walking with, who witnessed it. And what I came away with was complete agnosticism on what actually happened. Because I knew that if what the cop said was true, then this was a justified shooting. And I knew that if what the friend said was true, then this was a murder. And more importantly, I knew that I did not know enough to tell who was telling the truth, nor did anybody else. So for me, that was a a pretty crucial moment because I just, I gave myself permission to to think skeptically, to think about what is true here outside of the prepared narratives on both sides, the prepackaged narratives that you're sold. And that kind of attitude is, is, you know, since that point, what I've tried to bring to, to overall the issues of race and racism. And I think it's an attitude that is unfortunately in too short supply and that isn't, isn't really taught to kids very well and isn't, isn't very present in the culture right now. Mm-hmm. I. I want to insert a question here because it's really interesting. Um, There's another suspicion that I had, and I think it was in 2017. I never really, I don't think I told anyone but my mother actually this. And this was, I told her this maybe last year. But um, when you're talking about Michael Brown and seeing the reports and like objectively looking at both sides, what made you not just have that reaction of, this report just is racist. This report's off. Since you were so passionate about BLM, what made you just say, actually, there might be some validity here instead of saying like, no, this is, this isn't right. This is doctored. That's a good question. I think by default, I tend to have more trust in institutions and society than, than some people do which is to say, I find a lot of people have a little bit of a conspiratorial bent, which is to say they're very quick to believe that something was doctored, that the world is basically full of good guys and bad guys, and that the bad guys are constantly gathering in back rooms, clinking cocktails together, 
twirling their mustaches and coming up with extremely devious ways to deceive the in all of society. And they're extremely powerful. And for some reason, there are almost never whistleblowers except for the occasional Snowden or, or Assange. I think that picture of the world is, is pretty untrue. I tend to think what's more true is that everybody is human, which means that often everyone has an incentive to lie or exaggerate uh, for their own benefit. The police lie and exaggerate all the time. I know that to be true. But I also know that the best friends of people who died lie and exaggerate all the time to protect their dead friend's reputation. So I, I couldn't give one side any sort of credit that I couldn't also give the other or any sort of skepticism that I, that I couldn't get the other absent further evidence that would confirm one side or the other from a neutral third party perspective. Well, I would say years ago, I definitely believed in the mustache man in that <laughs> because my story is complete opposite, though. I knew deep down what I saw was 100% true, but I refused to believe it. So I'm going to go back to what I was talking about when my mother was the only person I told this to. I think I was at grad school writing a paper and I told her this story. I remember I was invited to do a speech for March for Our Lives and I'd show up for the Black Lives Matter narrative, like the organization. And you know, I was going to talk about all of the Black people that died in 2017 and I believe 2016 were the years. And I went to look at the FBI reports and like the stats and the data and everything. And I was prepared to see a huge number. Like I was like, I was thinking I was going to see 2,000 Black unarmed people died or 3,000. Like, But when I saw two-digit numbers, I was like, and I was like, this is off. So I, I, it took me an hour to realize that the number I thought just didn't exist. And that, like, I think 2017, it said like 20 or something. I don't know the numbers, but it was two digits. And I remember just taking that complete paragraph that I was about to say in this speech totally out of it. Because that doesn't fit that narrative. If I say like we're constantly dying, but then there's only 20 of us dying a year. I was like, am I off or is this racist? And then I went with the latter. I was like, okay, these reports are racist. Like they're off. But I started to really, really think about that. And I was like, why is it that black people's death when we die by police why is it so easily accessible on social media and news? Why is it we are pretty much the only race that it's pushed in people's faces? And then I started looking back in history with American slavery. And I remember this one document, I forgot what it was called, but they talked about how slave owners would have these methods of dependence for um, the slaves and that when they would punish a slave, they never did it in isolation. They would always gather all the slaves around to watch the slave get beat so that they would be like infected with this insidious trauma of fear and then like fear by proxy by seeing the slave being beat. And not to say that is the same thing with the fear I was feeling, but with these videos so accessible everywhere, constantly, CNN, 
on a loop. Like I couldn't even get away. Even if I didn't want to watch the video, I found myself seeing it. And I started to think like, it's almost as if the 40 million of us that are in this, this nation, uh, the black community, it's almost like we're being gathered around to watch these videos, to like be induced with more fear of the cops, to be infected, to uh, have this fear that to always fear for our lives every day. And that's just something I was internally dealing with, never said out loud, and never thought to say out loud because if I did, I felt like I would completely invalidate Black Lives Matter and everyone that was involved. So it occurs to me, I was having a conversation with um, someone a few months ago, and they made a very good point criticizing the police. And the, the point they made was this when police are being trained, often there's a practice, a custom of showing new police officers videos of cops getting killed. Lots of it. And there are plenty of videos of cops getting killed, making a routine traffic stop. Someone pulls out a pistol and just shoots the cop, instantly goes away. Obviously, a cop should understand that this is the type of thing that can happen. At the same time, you can see how feeding a newbie cop just videos of that for you know in in you know excessively can create an outsized fear of that happening to the cop which can then make the cop a worse cop a more paranoid cop um so it's possible for there to be something that legitimately happens in the world that is then blown out of such proportion so as to create an irrational and unhelpful fear in the person who, who's being indoctrinated in this way. And, and the point I made in response was that, isn't that what we are doing as a nation to all black people by selectively taking videos of black Americans getting killed when there are really are just as many videos to find of white Americans getting killed in the identical circumstance and, and only showing the nation the examples of black people being killed. We're, we're indoctrinating black people in the same way that cops get indoctrinated. And this creates a, an outsized paranoia and, and fear of the cops, which then increases the tension between the police and black people, which, you know, there's already lots of tension there because of historical racism and, and, and whatnot. So, in any event, I just, I saw a parallel between these two types of dysfunction that seemed noteworthy to me. So do you think it's just simply paranoia on both sides that's the biggest enemy to both sides? Or do you think it's way more complicated than that? I think uh, it's, there's probably more than that, but paranoia is a, is a huge problem because in America, we're, we're trying to do something that most places historically have not even attempted to do, which is to have a multiracial, multiethnic democracy with substantial immigration of people from all over the world where everyone has equal rights. That is a historically novel scenario and historically recent. Most places that have had ethnic diversity have just you know, different groups of people have just been siloed into their camps, only trusting people like them. 
and interracial marriage is you know is 50 years old as a as a nationwide legal reality and in the context like that paranoia stoking paranoia is a huge problem because there's already a natural amount of paranoia between different groups of people and exaggerations about the faults of people on the other side and so i think anything that ratchets up the amount of paranoia on one side and therefore the amount of defensiveness on the other side is horribly damaging to race relations in the long run. It's interesting that, I mean, with the scenario with the police and then with what I just said, with how I think black death is being normalized with how videos are being circulated. It's interesting how we both, are seeing the same thing from different points of views, which is why, you know, I wrote that piece, Free Black Thought, and why now I champion heterodox thinking. But one thing in our community is that we express that we're not a monolith and we really, you know, advocate for that. But then again, it's taboo to have an unorthodox opinion like what we're expressing right now. So why do you think that is? Like, why do you think it's taboo for to champion heterodox thinking in the Black community, especially when we say we're diverse in thought? Hmm. It's a great question. I um, the thing I always think of here is when President Obama said, "There are as many ways to be black as there are black people." That's something I agree with. It's also something that taken to its logical conclusion means that blackness doesn't mean anything. If there are, a, there is similar to the, the quote by Dash from the Incredibles, that uh, Pixar movie, when he said, if, if everyone is special, that means no one is special, right? So the, the boundaries of blackness are defined by what can't be blackness. If there are no boundaries, then blackness doesn't actually mean anything. And that's very scary to people. At the same time, I don't know a single black person who doesn't have at least one opinion or hobby that would be considered outside the realm of stereotypical blackness. So there's this tension between, on the one hand, everyone being an individual and there really being no one out there who is perfectly representative of all of the correct black opinions and black personality tropes or, or whatever is imagined to define blackness. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the fact that people want blackness to mean something, they, they want it to mean something to be black. And that's an important part of many people's identity, which means that some things have to be not black. And then whatever those things are, whatever those opinions are, that's, that's who you punish. And, and then the question is, well, why is there why is there so much of this in the black community as opposed to other communities well there is a lot of it in other communities too is is the first thing to note but i think it probably has to do with a cultural holding pattern from an earlier era an era where america was much more siloed into different races and you actually it actually made some sense to only trust your own and to punish traitors because 
your survival depended on it more. The great writer Shelby Steele, uh, who grew up under Jim Crow, talked about being a kid and going, you know, driving into a new segregated town. And the first thing you would do when you drove into such a town is you would find the first black person that you saw and ask them which hotels you could stay at and which hotels you couldn't, which restaurants you could go to and which you couldn't, which parts of town you should avoid and so forth. And then he recalls driving through the same town he drove through as a kid many decades later and thinking how utterly different it seemed, how crazy it would feel for him to go up to a black person and and need any information that was truly pertinent to his survival because of how much things had changed. So you could see how in the first instance, it kind of makes sense to have an ethic of sticking together and punishing traitors. But I think um, many people have a difficulty recognizing a new situation. So I think it involves one, I think it involves a lot of things of why it's taboo, but I think it involves one major thing. So like this notion that tells us that we're fighting this black mission together. And that if you individualize yourself from the belief of that, then you're excommunicating yourself in the place in the race. And after like interrogating this idea, that's how you know, my article came about and I was just getting at it at that point, but I'm really diving into this more and more and then I'm writing another piece. But I think our community sees um, a black individual who holds an unorthodox viewpoint, like you said, as a traitor of the race, because to hold a different opinion and idea from the mission, it seemed that you don't want to be black. It seemed that you want to break away from what that means. And I remember reading this book last year called Black Skin, White Mask. And the author really gets into this like psychoanalysis of this idea of this like black belief system that it's like this inherited black consciousness that it becomes like the default way for one to think of oneself. And basically that each black person who inherits this black consciousness they are not an individual holding their own thoughts about racism and oppression, but merely like a body, like an object holding ordained thoughts on these issues, if that makes sense. So if this is the main idea and if this is like what it is, to me, it does make sense why a large portion of our community would see like a heterodox way of life as betraying the race, as a threat. And that the people who do this need to be figuratively annihilated, like canceled into Coon or Uncle Tom or anti-Black or even white because they're a hazard. But I mean, like we're saying, the real hazard, the real betrayal is the fact that we don't, the fact that we police Black people on how to think and that Obama's right. There are 40 million different ways to be Black. There are 40 million different narratives, and there's not just one. But that's my idea with it. It's more complicated than that, but I do think that we have this sense that we have to stick together because there's only 13% of us, and the world's already against us. So if one of us you know, breaks away, then you're automatically an enemy. 
Like we need, we need the numbers. We need, we need the people to champion this one idea of liberation. So what I notice about that, by the way, is that it is the logic of war. It's the, um, it's the, it's the metaphor of society as a war with different armies, with, with the different races being different armies, right? That's how you, you punish traitors in war and there's a logic to it. But I think of society, you know, in, in different terms. I don't think the, the problems we're facing at this point are a zero-sum struggle between races that are fundamentally vying for power and that the way to win is therefore to band together and use intra-racial resources against the oppressor race. I think uh, the problems are much more complicated than that. You look at Detroit and Atlanta, cities that have had a Black political class for decades now, yet face the same problems as cities with more diverse leadership, suggests that the problem is not merely a question of the skin color or racial loyalties of those who have power. These are complex issues. I I guess this is a a good time to sort of transition to your, what you talked about in your article relating to your initial impression of my testimony against reparations and the event with your former teacher, Tanahasi, Can you talk a little bit about what your, you know, what your views were on that testimony at the time and, and how they evolved? Yeah. I remember that day very clear. I would say, honestly, the first time I listened, or honestly, this is what happened. I, I was listening to Coates and I was watching you. I wasn't listening really to what you had to say because you were on the opposite side. So I found what you said wrong or controversial simply because you were stating opposing opinions against HR 40, against reparations. But as I started going through my own critical thinking interrogation of my own identity after I graduated NYU and I started reading like books like Black Skin, White Mask and reading other people like Thomas Sowell and John McWhorter and people I never thought I'd ever listen to, even in Shelby still being one, I started to realize like I don't have to holistically agree with everything they're saying, but what some of the stuff that they're saying makes completely makes complete sense. And actually when I look in hindsight, the questions I had about BLM, they were answering in that year for me. But during that time when I revisited that congressional hearing and I rewatched it multiple times, I realized that your statement was still controversial, but I found it truthful because you were, you had statistics and logic to back up your point. And maybe I didn't 100% agree with you, but I heard you. And a couple of things that stuck out for me was when you said, you talked about this poll that 33% of Black people were against reparations because it would make them a victim without the consent. And then you said something like a money transfer would belittle American slavery. And so objectively, I was just like, well, he's not saying Black people don't deserve reparations. He's just saying from his research and his point of view and what he believes and sees and maybe, you know, his his conclusion is that if we receive reparations, it might harm us. So in a way, you are championing the Black community in a different way than Coates. But really what compelled me to write that 
article was the simple fact is, and I put it in there that I found quotes eloquently accurate and you controversially truthful. And I realized like when I was watching you, the binary of thought, like the two houses that I felt like was in the black community, like the liberal house and the conservative house, I realized that was gone. I don't know if it's gone, but it was starting to deconstruct because it wasn't as if I was like, well, Coleman's right and Coates, bye-bye. It was like, no, Coleman, I see what he's saying and Coates, I'm seeing what he's saying and both of them are offering up great point of views and maybe somewhere in the middle is where we need to be or one might be right over the other. But yeah, that's that's how my journey with seeing you at that hearing the first time and then multiple times afterwards, I was happy that I revisited that congressional hearing because that's when I saw a stark difference between how I was thinking before and how I was critically looking at things now. Yeah. I guess, you know, the thing I noticed about your reaction there is that there's a huge gap between how people react in the privacy of their own homes and how people react in social media and in public. And the gap, as, as far as I can tell, is that I think there are a lot of people that came away from that testimony or from similar events seeing both sides of the issue. There is a, and there was this big political tribes report uh, last year, which, found, which talked about the notion of an exhausted majority in the center that, that is not so extreme on either side of, of many of these sensitive cultural issues. But for the most part, in the talking heads and, and on Twitter, you see the most extreme versions of, of each side. And that leads each side to think of the other side as crazier and more extreme than it actually is. And that's a huge problem right now is, is that if you, and there's, there's lots of studies on this, if you ask Republicans what they think the average Democrat believes, they picture the average Democrat as someone who is completely pro-open borders, um, who wants to dismantle capitalism. And then if you, if you do the same thing on the other side, the average Democrat sees the average Republican as someone who completely wants zero immigration, wants to completely gut the welfare state. And both of these are just caricatures. And it makes it very difficult to enter a conversation with someone you disagree with, with any chance of there being a meeting of the minds. It's, it's a very difficult, it's almost impossible to really express that. And there's also not a huge market for it. There, there's a huge market for extreme opinions. So that's sort of what I gleaned from your article, in addition to simply being happy that, you know, somebody saw that and was at minimum somewhat persuaded by it. Mm-hmm. When you were walking in, I'm just curious, when you were walking in to the congressional hearing and you knew, you know, you're about to make a big statement nationally, did you have that in mind that you wanted to break that stereotype of what a conservative would be? Because if you're on the opposing side of quotes, you're considered a black conservative. Like, was that in your mind at all? Or what was in your mind? Like, how were you feeling when you were um, trying to express this 
Yeah, just quickly, because I think we will we'll get to the Q&A in a moment. Yeah, I, I've, you know, I've never thought of myself as a, as a black conservative or as a conservative. I, um, I've tended to think of myself as someone who is committed to reason and to thinking about what makes sense from the point of my bedrock philosophical principles. So, you know, it, it wasn't, I, I wasn't going into there trying to, do, you know, rebrand black conservatism or, or anything like that. I, I was just trying to speak uh, from what I saw to be true. So let's, uh, let's now go to the, the Q&A. Yes. So this is a, a good time to jump in. Uh, you guys, if I could, just before I start with some of the questions, since you are speaking in front of a synagogue community, I wonder if I might ask anti-Semitism and anti-Israel sentiment in BLM and other progressive movements. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yes. Well, there's a lot to say about that. I think the most important point to make is that, and I noticed this, especially as a Columbia student, is that many people sympathetic to Black Lives Matter and Black identity politics in the American context have a sort of cookie cutter vision uh, or have, have a cartoon version of the Israel-Palestine conflict that is actually just a carbon copy in their minds of American race relations. So they see America as American race relations as, as fundamentally about the oppressor and the oppressed. And you can see how one gets to that with American history. Black people were slaves here and then, you know, uh, subject to segregation for another hundred years. And white supremacy was the law of the land until the mid sixties in many places. So folks see that and then graft that picture onto Israel, analogizing the, the Jews to whites and Palestinians to blacks. And what I encountered a lot at Columbia is students who had no knowledge in particular about uh, the history of Israel or Israeli politics, but who nevertheless had equally strong opinions that had just been imported from their view of American racial politics. They, they had just pressed copy-paste on their views about American race relations and, and just pasted that into the Israeli context, uh, which I think is a, a rather large mistake. If you, have, if you have any comments, Brittany, great. Otherwise, I'll move on to some of the questions. Your call. I guess we can do the Q&A so there's more time. Okay, so actually there's, there's a question. I'm going to combine a question from Matthew and it looks like from Kate. So Matthew asks, uh, he says, Malcolm X famously said that white liberals were the greatest enemy of blacks in America. As a 57-year-old white male liberal, I'm only now starting to understand that. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? And similar from a 27-year-old white woman who lives in Seattle and works as staff at a public university. Yeah, I know that quote well. And actually, well, yeah, I posted that quote like recently. But <laughs> I think what Malcolm X was getting at, and we're seeing it right now, especially with public figures like Robin D'Angelo heading this um, issue. I, I do believe this. And in a particular way, now with the anti-racist movement, there's obviously a lot of white liberals inside of this and mobilizing and fighting. 
for Black Lives Matter, but it seems that Black Lives Matter has become a space for people like these people to try to figure out how they cannot be racist and how they can get their allyship badge and their woke button and exempt themselves from being the problem, therefore being good. And that Black Lives Matter for them is not really about Black lives, it's about their lives. It's about how can I make this work for me? How can I make myself look good? And unfortunately, people like Robin D'Angelo, they're making a fortune selling this concept and which backfires on Black people because what this does is it essentially dehumanizes Black people by infantilizing us, by telling white people that all Black people are victims and that they all need your help, that they cannot be saved if white people don't save them, which is very patronizing. So what I'm seeing from, I'm, I'm not going to say all white liberals, but woke people that identify, <laughs> identify as woke, I feel like they're not helping Black people in a way of helping a peer. I feel like they're trying to parent kids. And like Malcolm X also said, people that pity you, they do not respect you. So that is what I'm seeing right now. And yeah, I completely agree with that, with that quote. Uh, Coleman, any thoughts on that or ready to move on? I think that was a, that was a great answer. Okay. Let's see, from Shelley. Why do you think of the worldwide eruption in response to the Floyd killing? What was it COVID cabin fever or the intensity of, of the event? Why, why the worldwide eruption over this event? Certainly COVID cabin fever. Um, I went to several protests in New York and it was, it's fair to say this was the closest thing you could possibly get to a concert. And it was, you know, it was June and people were, you know, understandably extremely antsy and there was nothing to do. Very few people had jobs. Many people had gotten fired. The, the Zoom world was working, but it wasn't working to the degree that it is now. Uh, so the, the weather was great, at, at least in, you know, in the north uh, of America where, where that matters. So all of those things conspired to cause the sort of global eruption. And then there was just the, the brutality of the image itself. Uh, there's something more brutal about seeing a knee on the neck for eight and a half minutes than seeing someone get shot to death. And so I think the the combination of those two things, and it, it also, it must be said, the fact, it seems too obvious to say this, but it's it's an important element. The fact that George Floyd was black and Derek Chauvin was white. Had that not been the case, obviously there would not have been the protests. Again, it sounds so obvious, but there was a white man named Tony Timpa who was killed in 2016 or 2017 in Dallas in an almost identical fashion to George Floyd with a knee on his upper back for something like 13 minutes. And the cops are laughing as they essentially kill this man. Uh, they're making jokes about him waking up for school. It's every bit as grotesque as the George Floyd video. And I actually recommend you don't watch it because it's, again, it's so grotesque. But had that happened, even with COVID cabin fever, 
there would not have been global protests. So it's those three elements. It's, it's the race, it's the brutality of the particular kind of hold and the racial component. Okay, another question for you both from John Wilcox. Do you think the BLM movement will be strengthened or not by Biden's election? Or put another way, what does Biden's election mean for the BLM movement? If you want to go first, Coleman. You know, I, I suppose we will see, but my impression is that BLM got some energy from the presidency of Donald Trump and that without him, there's no apparent sort of white male bogeyman that is as good as Trump as, as somebody for BLM to hate. And um, having the right enemy tends to be a good thing for the energy of a movement. That's not to say BLM will really recede in the absence of Trump because it, it came up in the era of, of Obama. But I, I have to think that will, that will do something to suck a little bit of the energy out of the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that point. Also, I think with Black Lives Matter, it's complicated. I would say, I would take a wild guess and say that most of them voted for Biden, even if that wasn't their candidate. But I don't think that Black Lives Matter on a large scale trusts the Biden-Harris administration. I see a lot of people talking about, well, she's still a cop, talking about Harris and talking about Biden isn't really um, down for what they want to do. And I would say Biden doesn't want to implement what they're striving for, which is like defund the police or abolish the police. So I don't see Biden's administration stopping BLM or anything like that, but definitely the momentum, I don't see it getting bigger because of this new president. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks guys. Um, One from William. Um, What William is asking is how do you stay balanced and clear in your thinking? How do you ensure that you don't abandon one ideology over the other? How how do you maintain sort of a a balance in your ideologies? That's sort of your heterodoxy and thinking. I think my answer is kind of to the point, to be honest, and this is not going to turn into a Sunday sermon or anything like that, but I think that my, my faith um, in God actually has helped me a lot to see past people's identity politics and the party they're for or the race they're representing or what have you, how they're separating themselves in this nation. I really think because my faith helps me to see people with just their human to the point where, you know, certain circumstances can come up and it's coming up more so now that I am having conversations with people that I don't think normally would have conversations with me only because they realize like, oh, this is a Black Lives Matter former leader who is going down this journey with heterodox thinking. She likes Tennessee Coach. She likes Coleman Hughes and Thomas Sowell. What's going on? Like, they're just interested in talking to me. And I realize that sometimes, well, a lot of the times in their comment section, I mean, there's a lot of people that will throw racial epithets at me or will say certain things. And I honestly don't get upset because I, like, I don't, I don't get mad too much um, as I would prior, just because 
I realize these people are saying this out of fear. They're saying it because of something else. Like racism is the most cliche thing. It's like something behind that is actually why you have an issue with me or that you want to tie yourself to white power or whatever. And so basically, long story short, so we get to Coleman, my faith helps me not to be biased with people. I think it's a definitely a struggle. You have to have a very self-critical personality type. I think you have to be constantly worried that you're wrong, which is, I think you have to be slightly neurotic in order for that to, uh, to actually work to your benefit as you know, someone who is trying to overcome your own biases. And then beyond that, cultivating and maintaining friendships with people who routinely disagree with you is very difficult, but very important because there are limits to how well you'll be able to adopt the other side's perspective as an exercise, right? That's a, that's an exercise every writer has to do. You have to imagine what someone who disagree with you, who disagrees with you would say, but there are limits to how good you can be at that, right? You'll never actually be as good at disagreeing with yourself as a smart person and a motivated person who actually disagrees with you will. You'll never work as hard as they will to find the flaws in your own argument. So maintaining and, and having friendships with, with people who disagree with you is a, is a big one. Okay, another question. Uh, black voters, black men in particular, voted in greater numbers for Trump in 2020 than they did in 2016. I wonder how each of you interpret that. Well, yes, it's, um, I'm not totally sure why it happened. What I do know is that that's a, that's a trend that's been going on for 10 or 15 years now, is that almost in, in every election, there's been a slight rightward shift among black men uh, and Hispanic men. And largely Biden won because he gained so much ground with white voters that he made up the ground he lost compared to Hillary with black and Hispanic voters. Um, it certainly goes against all of the, the maximalist claims about how racist Donald Trump is. There's certainly, there's, a, there's tension between those two. I, again, I, I can't really explain the trend, but I, I think what I can say is that people should stop naively assuming that the opinions of black people neatly reflect the opinions of the black writers at the New York times op-ed page. I mean, how many times does that have to be disproved before we stop making the assumption, right? When Gallup polls black people and finds 80%, 81% either want the same police presence or more police presence, which means only 19% want less police, which is the official position of the progressive black intelligentsia that supposedly speaks on behalf of the black community. How many times do these neat things need to happen before people wake up and realize that the positions of the people within the anti-racist activist silo bears very little relationship to the opinions of black Americans as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would just add on to that a little bit like what Coleman was saying before I listen to 
so many different people, um, no matter what side they're on, conservative, whatever. I listened to so many different people. And I don't think I was really surprised that the, there was a spike of Black men voters for Trump because of the conversations I was hearing prior to the election. And it was just simply this. They were, they were tired of feeling like victims by, by the left or feeling like obligated to vote for a Democrat because they're Black. And that these men were more or less not playing into identity politics. Therefore, they felt like they were breaking away from the stereotype of who they should vote for and they were going to vote for whoever they wanted, which was Trump. So that was a kind, of, kind of the consistent narrative I was seeing prior to the election. So I wasn't really too surprised. Okay, guys, it's eight o'clock, but I actually just had this one thing uh, for you, Coleman, from Michael Hood, Julian. Glenn Lowry and John McCord are recently applauded you for making the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Uh, they speculated that your recognition may show a shift in the mainstream media to adopt more heterodox thinking. What do you make of this? And are you as optimistic as they are? I can't say that I am. I, I really hope they're right. But uh, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I, re I really do hope they're right. That's funny because I was actually going to ask you that. That being on that list, do you think there's some hope for heterodox thinking? So that's interesting. But congrats. You know, thank you. Yeah, congratulations. In a way, I'm probably the worst person to, to ask. Because if there were a trend, I'm, I'm not even sure I would be in a position to notice it. Um, or maybe I'm the best person to ask. I, I really don't know. But it's certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for the accolade. And um, I certainly hope it signals what Glenn and John think it signals. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Well, I, I think we're out of time. And um, I, I just want to thank you both for a tremendous conversation. It was really so thought-provoking for our entire community. And I, I wanted to... Thank Brotherhood again and the Racial Justice Committee for bringing this about. Also, thanks to our program director, Roberta Kahn, for being our Zoom coordinator. And special shout out to Bob Wolf for all your help. And uh, you guys, just thank you, thank you. Really, a, a, lot to, a lot to digest, a lot to think about. And um, I guess that's it. Have a, have a great rest of your evenings and uh, have a good night. All right. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you, thank thank you so, so much. much, you guys. Bye. Bye.